Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 88. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Rolling along, still talking about open guard. And today, we wanted to talk about a very, very interesting discussion when it comes to open guard. That is gi-based guards. Now, the reality is there's a lot of different types of open guard that you can play. Some of them, a lot of the ones we talked about already, are really versatile, such as X guard, for example, butterfly guard. You can play these in the gi or without. But there are some types of open guard that really only make sense if you're playing the gi. Like, for example, spider guard, collar and sleeve guard, worm guard, some of the stuff. And although Rob Bernacki will claim that Delahiva guard can work in both gi and no gi, the reality is it's a lot more effective in the gi. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to attempt to outline and try to explain on a podcast exactly how all of these different guards work, because I think that's kind of more than you can achieve just through audio. But what we wanted to do was talk about some of the main defining concepts and considerations that occur when you're playing these guards that are very specific to the gi. Yeah. Throughout my purple and brown belt years, I kind of focused a bit more on no gi. And it's funny, I, I when I got, I mean, I'd always done the gi, but I realized even after I got my black belt, you know, I started competing with some black belts and I was like, man, my guard is like not as good as it used to be. And then, yeah, I've been kind of studying how I can make my gi game better from the bottom. And I realized like, I'm not a very good guard player actually. <laughs> and I need to, uh, like locally I feel pretty good, but then you go against some of these like really good guys in the black belt division. It's like, man, don't really want to even be on my back anymore. And, uh, I really tried to really tried to research ways that I can make my gi game better from the bottom. It's funny. Like it's one of those things you put in a lot of time and you think you're like good at it, but then you, after some studying, you realize like, oh, I'm actually, I actually was kind of doing this wrong the whole time. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, for me, I have always been more of a gi guy, so I'm so comfortable playing from the gi. And I'm used to the fact that when I walk into someone's guard, I'm going to get tied up like crazy. Where I actually find it a challenge is because I don't do a lot of no gi. When I do, it's just always a shock because it's so hard to hold people where you want them to go. You really have a hard time stopping them from blitzing you if they're the one on the top. It is actually really amazing how different the game gets when you're talking about playing gi or no gi. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of specific considerations when it comes to open guard and the way that you play it. And a lot of the rules that we talk about on this podcast, they kind of get changed a little bit when the gi comes into play because so many of the mental models that we discuss, they're all about body mechanics and how, you know, your limbs work, how your spine works. But 
when you start introducing fabric, then that kind of changes the ways that you can get leverage. You now have these other options. There are things you can do with lapels. You can wrap them around people and you wind up having all of these interesting novel ways to get leverage that really takes some getting used to if you're only thinking about things through the context of the human body. Additionally, one of the things that is challenging about playing these gi-based open guards is the gi is really sticky. Like, it is so easy to get a dominant grip in the gi versus in no gi. You really have to try in no gi if you want to get a dominant grip that you can use to hold someone, control their arm, go for an arm drag. And a lot of the time when you're setting up grips in no gi, you're not going to be able to just hold the grip. You kind of have to take it, use it quickly before your opponent reacts and then move on. I mean, if I'm trying to go for an arm drag and I grab your wrist, I'm probably not going to be able to just hold onto your wrist no matter what and just control it. But in the gi, grabbing the sleeves, grabbing the lapel, grabbing the pant legs is very different. When you grab onto someone, you can really, really keep connected to them for almost as long as you want unless your opponent starts taking real action to try to strip or invert that grip. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like how Rob calls it direct control, which would which would refer to controlling the human body in in a nogi scenario, or control by proxy, which would include you know the gi, which has its sleeves, lapels, collars, all types of different grips. So it really does change a lot of how you should approach your guard. Uh, I think the problem with me when I first started, and I think, you know, 10 years ago when jujitsu was not as current as it is now, it was, it's not as sophisticated as it is now. A lot of guys, even in the world class level, would try to play when they do no gi, they'd try to play as if they're doing gi jujitsu, but just without the gi. So you'd see like guys trying to force Delaheva and things like that. And it's, in my opinion, not the best way to play a seated guard or even, you know, a guard off your back in nogi anymore there's we're clearly seeing that the best guys in the world play seated guards certain ways and you know you can play delahiva i know you know rob does play delahiva reverse delahiva and for sure those guards are valid uh nogi but in terms of actual like controls and strong positional play it's not as good as getting the inside position anymore. And and it won't open up as many leg locks. I mean, you could argue K guard and things like that. Yes, you can enter the legs, but we're still seeing most guys funnel their legs to the inside and being effective in nogi that way. So, you know, it it really is important that you, you stay current and look at the best guys and sort of see how they're structuring their guards. For Guy, John Thomas just put out a instructional with Stefan Casting on grapple arts. I forget what he calls it. Open guard... I think it's just the open guard system by Jonathan Thomas or something like that. You got to get a name that's easier to find in Google. (laughs) You know, that guy's really good. I've learned a lot of stuff from him, so I'm definitely going to check that out. And it's yeah, the the grips are just so much more sustainable in the gi. When you can grab someone's collar, you basically directly have you have a grip that's connected to their spine, their posture. And that's going to allow you to elevate them, get underneath them a lot easier. Where in in no gi, you know, if you the closest thing to that would be a collar tie and that's easily stripped, right? So really different type of jujitsu. 
Yeah, one of the things that is very, very different about Gi is the grips. And it is just such a first-class concern. In no Gi, I mean, especially after the match has been going on for a while and things get slippery, it becomes very, very hard to actually keep a grip sustainably. You almost have to use a grip sort of like Kazushi, where you get the grip, you do your move, and then you go. And Matt, I know that you do a lot of no Gi, and I've noticed this when I'm sparring with you, which is that when you go to set up an arm drag, you don't fuck around like you grab and then you go because you know that if you give me even a fraction of a second, I'm going to be able to invert or change that grip because you're not grabbing onto anything meaningful. So as soon as my body comes to the conclusion as to how to react properly and it reacts, then that grip becomes no longer useful. Whereas in the gi, man, if you like grab someone's sleeve or grab someone's lapel, it is a real fight to break that grip. It is not something that can just be done easily. And the other thing, too, about the gi is that it's so easy to get those grips. Like in no gi, if you even want to get a grip, you really have to fight for it. Whereas in the gi, it's almost impossible not to get a grip. (laughs) Like it's Mm -hmm. just so easy to grab onto something. There's always going to be something in your face, right? If you can't get the sleeve, you're going to be able to get the lapel or you're going to be able to get the pant leg. And it's just very sticky in that approach. If you come anywhere near your opponent, they're going to latch onto you and you're going to have a real time trying to break those grips. And it is a very, very different set of concerns. Now, something else that you brought up was the concept of the inside channel and how that changes so much when you're talking about gi versus no gi. Now, inside channel control, where you try to get your arms, your legs, your head on the inside of your opponent's super critical if you're playing nogi. In fact, it is very hard to find situations in nogi where you can violate that principle and still succeed. Like almost every strategy you're going to use in nogi requires you to get the inside channel. But in the gi, you don't necessarily need it. You've got a lot of positions like De La Hiva guard, for example, where you wrap around on the outside. And you can get away with that because by grabbing cloth, you can create these awkward situations where you force someone to look away from you. I mean, De La Hiva guard, I think, is probably a very pronounced example of that, where instead of getting the inside channel, you get that outside channel, and then you basically grab fabric so that the guy can't get back to facing you the way he wants. Yeah, and of course, all the single leg X, X guard family, uh, butterfly guard is all inside channel stuff. It leads to all different, you know, leg entanglements and things like that. And it's just a great way to get underneath your opponent. So if you're if you're a smaller opponent, I think it's definitely a stronger strategy than a Delahiva, in my opinion. Delahiva is it's a great guard, but I mean, unless you're constantly off balancing your opponent, it just it kind of falls apart, right? So it's it's nice to be able to get to the inside. I think that all of these guards are still applicable, Nogi. You know, and as we've discussed in this series, we've talked extensively about the different guards. I guess really today what we're talking about a lot is the difference of grips because the grips are really what differentiates these guards, gi and no gi. And the, th- the thing about the gi is when you have those grips, you can pretty comfortably play off your back and still off balance, even if you're off your back. But in no gi, if you're on your back, it's pretty difficult to off balance your opponent now because you can't really you know, use any grips to to get underneath them very easily if you're already there. Whereas in the gi, you can totally use 
use different grips to elevate constantly. And it just, I, I find, for example, you know, if I try and play Gordon Ryan's no gi passing thing, uh, system in the gi, a lot of the time I get elevated and swept. While I think some of the concepts he shows cross over for both, I think just throwing yourself floating on top of the headquarters is not necessarily the best strategy in the gi. So it's, you know, it's, it's important to recognize, especially if you're new, and you're trying to build a gi and a no gi game simultaneously that you recognize these subtle differences between the guards and what makes certain guards effective and what makes them weak. Yeah, definitely. I really like some of those examples you brought up about how, for example, leaning forward on top of your opponents and doing like um, almost kind of like that that pass where you lean forward on top of them and then you pummel your legs to get around them. That might work in no gi, but in gi it's tricky because the leverage points are just very, very different, right? There's a lot of things that your opponent can do if lapels and sleeves are in play and it can open up a lot of options. And even beyond that, there's just a battle of friction, right? The fact that friction exists so much greater when you're sparring in the gi, it actually changes the game significantly. There's a lot of moves that really, despite the fact that they're not mechanically that different, they just won't work the same if you're in the gi or if you're in no gi. I mean, probably some of the most common examples that people can think of are various types of chokes like the guillotine or the rear naked choke. These prove to be very, very difficult to get or when you're in the gi. And similar problems can occur when it comes to guards. Just the absence or presence of all of that friction can change the way that you go about trying to control someone or trying to hold them in place. I mean, as an example, you know, if you want to play some sort of guard where you like sit up and you go seated in the gi you have a lot of different pieces of cloth you can grab to hold the person in place but in no gi especially if it gets slippery it is a lot easier for the person to like pummel their leg out or escape their leg and these things definitely have consequences and I agree that I've made the same mistake that you made Matt where I used to kind of look at gi and no gi as more or less the same. Like I would, I would play basically the exact same strategy regardless of what I was doing. And to some extent, I still like to optimize my strategy and I prefer to use techniques that work regardless of whether you're in the gi or not. But you definitely have to make some adjustments because some things just are going to have to be played differently if you've got the kimono on or if you don't have the kimono on. Interesting example that you gave when we were talking about the show was the concept of supine guards, which are, you know, these are the kinds of guards where basically you lie flat on your back. And you were talking about how if you're playing supine open guards, these tend to be a lot easier in the gi. Whereas if you're doing these in no gi, you're probably just going to get killed. Yeah. So supine guards, you know, I, I think a great example, um, would be like a headquarters position. You know, if you're, if you have like a, like a Delaheva guard and they stuff the leg in the middle and now you're in headquarters, in the gi, you have a lot of opportunities to grip your opponent and off balance them. You, know, you can grab their collar. Another grip that I'm really starting to like, I didn't like it at first, but now I'm using it a lot is the pant grip. And I find that that is such a such an important piece of the of the gi game, because when you have that ankle grip, you know, you're, you don't have direct ankle control, but they can't pummel their foot free. They can't escape. And there's tons of different things you can do to control that leg once you control the pants and you just certainly can't do that no gi so leg pummeling becomes a lot more effective for the person on top 
especially in like a, a headquarters position when it comes to no gi as opposed to gi. I find it, I find in headquarters when I'm in the gi, I, I really want to keep my weight back and kind of compress their hooks and not come forward. Whereas in Nogi, it's the Gordon Ryan passing system where you're sort of bringing your head over top of their head and then you're being heavy with your upper body and, and pummeling with your lower body. I think that that's obviously much more tailored for Nogi. So because these grips are available, you have to be super careful how you give up your center of gravity and how you, you know, you're setting up your passing strategies. And obviously when there's grips, you can do a lot more with your passing from the top position. If, if the passer grabs your pants, you know, the, the consequences could be really bad because now they have these grips controlled, uh, the ends of levers to your hips. So if they redirect those levers and then they, you know, they create wedges in the way and they can really secure some strong passing positions, whereas Nogi can be a little bit of a slip and slide sometimes, especially like you mentioned, when uh, your opponent is all sweaty and possibly greased up. Yeah, that's a great example. The pant grips. I mean, <laughs> when you're in the gi and you're playing guard from the bottom, if your opponent is able to grab your pants, pant legs, the fabric, that is basically one of the worst things that can happen to you from that position. It means that you're probably going to get past unless you're able to pummel those grips away. Whereas in Nogi, your opponent grabbing your legs and even controlling them to some extent is not as problematic. Uh, in the gi though, man, like once your opponent grabs onto that fabric by your, your legs, it becomes very, very difficult to actually break and free that simply because the grip is so strong. Like you can do all of the hip escapes that you want all day long <laughs> and they can still continue to hold that fabric and that's going to eventually let them get the pass unless you're able to take some corrective action. And similarly, if you try to turn away and go a turtle, you're going to have a similar problem where if your opponent is able to retain the pant grips, they can kind of just pull you and put you back to where they want you to go. Yeah. So as the guy on the bottom, you have to be extra mindful in the gi about making sure that your opponent does not grab controlling grips on your pant legs. Yeah. And I think going to turtle in the gi can actually have, you know, it's way more risky than no gi because in the gi, there's tons of collar chokes available. So, uh, you know, even if you're even if you're doing kind of a good job and shelling up a little bit, sometimes you can leave your neck out there and they can just grab that collar. They don't need to get like a, their arm around your neck. So 100%. Yeah, that's a problem that I have going for turtle a lot is in no gi, if I turtle away from my opponents, I mean, I, I know what they're going to do, right? They're either going to try to like ride me hip to hip or they're going to try to jump my back. And I can control both of those situations. But in the gi, it gets quite different because if you go to pull turtle, to your point, they might grab your collar and then they can do things like a bow and arrow choke from the top, which is just the worst. Yeah, <laughs> so. Or a clock choke, right? If the bow and arrow doesn't work, if they can't get their hooks in, they don't even need their hooks in to strangle you. If they get a collar grip, they can go clock choke. So there's like, I think it's way more dangerous in the gi to be in the turtle position. I mean, I know you do have like more grips from that position from bottom turtle, but like it's still not really a position that I like to be in. I know you uh, you kind of got a hard on for the turtle anyways, but <laughs> I, well, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, turtle, of course, is not a guard technically it's a useful recovery and retention skill. But yeah, even if you want to play that in the gi versus a no gi, 
you do have to be very careful. Like if you want to do it on the gi, one of the things to bear in mind, like you said, is that they might be able to grab your collar, which is really bad news. But the other thing is it's a lot harder for your opponent to get a seatbelt on you or to get their hooks in in the gi. Whereas in no gi, I mean, things get so slippery, for example, it's usually quite easy for your opponent to get their hooks in. And that can be a challenge that is very, very difficult to deny. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of the time when you see guys like pull guard right off the get-go in gi matches you're gonna see guys fall to their back more often than in no gi or at least i think you'll see guys be more effective taking that strategy in gi than you would in no gi i think guys that sort of pull delahiva guard in no gi a lot of the time you know with today's strategies and what we're seeing at the highest level a lot of the time those guards just you know unless you're a Mayao brother you have amazing guard retention it's it's not the best strategy to employ uh, I think the sitting up hand fighting uh, strategy in Nogi is much more effective. And then if you have to fall to your back in a defensive cycle, then you do. You fall back, you defend, and you work your way back to a seated position. Whereas in Gi, a lot of guys will just pull into Delahiva. You know, they'll like they'll they'll immediately fall to their back. They know that for their opponent to control one of their levers, and if you have Delahiva and your opponent on top is going to grab your leg and stuff it in the middle. They have to reach for your leg. So you can just bring your knee to your chest and, and re-grip them. So you know that where their wrist is going to be. If you're an intelligent grip fighter, you know that uh, if you're on your back playing Delahiva in the gi, that you don't really have to go hunting for the wrist. It's going to come to you because they're going to try and stuff your leg in the middle or throw you into a leg drag. So that's kind of uh, something that's, that's important to think about when you're grip fighting in the gi is how am I going to get control of these grips And should these grips break, what is my next play? So I don't have to think about it in the moment. I can just fall into that play. Yeah, there's that old saying that when they grab cloth, you grab cloth, meaning that basically like as soon as your opponent gets a grip on you, the first thing you have to try to do is get a counter grip. You can never leave them in a situation where the grip is undefended. And in the gi, yeah, if someone is going to grab you, then by virtue of the fact that their hand is grabbing your cloth, of course, you can just reach over and grab right back. Whereas in no gi, it doesn't quite work that way. It proves to be a lot more challenging to take a dominant grip in no gi. And just because someone you know, has their hand around your wrist or something that does not guarantee in no gi that you can establish an effective counter grip. So one of the things about gi based guards is getting into the habit of being really sticky and making sure that you always either try to grab first or if you fail to do that, that you counter grip right away. In no gi, it does get a little bit more challenging because you can't rely on just being able to reach out and grab something and hold it. And the example you gave about headquarters I think is a great one. That's probably one of the most obvious differences when it comes to gi versus no gi based open guard. In the gi, I love going to headquarters. You know, I feel very safe there. I can grab on, I can hold my opponent there, and I can move into a lot of different positions. But in no gi, being stuck in headquarters on the bottom is it's just a matter of time before the guy passes you. If you stay there with your back on the floor, it is not good news. You simply don't have enough to be able to hold them in that position. They usually wind up blitzing you and passing you. So 
the main difference I have with these guards is when I'm playing headquarters, if I'm on the bottom in the gi, I'm comfortable staying there for a while and setting up what I want. But in no gi, if I find myself in that position, I immediately try to get out. Like you mentioned, getting to seated or something else, just staying in headquarters on the bottom is really not a good strategy. Yeah. So that is just headquarters and no gi is just a position I, I really don't like to be in. I consider that basically full on defense in that position because there's not really much I can do uh, until I can create space and get the inside position again. I just can't entangle legs and get, you know, get to the guards that I want to get to. It's basically all a defensive cycle from there. To some degree, the same is true in Gi, but I feel like the recovery is much more effective from there just because you can literally just grab your opponent's collar and sort of chuck them over top of you and and start entering into different guards and you know if you have that pant grip you can set up a lot of different controls from there so it's 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 kind of different you know at at my school we kind of consider that when we're doing nogi we consider that uh top headquarters position kind of a hub position uh where most of our passing starts from just based based off the gordon ryan stuff that's kind of the position that he forces to. And then from there, depend, depending on the reactions of his opponent, he has multiple different systems that he does. So we kind of we play like an engagement phase game at my school where the person on top is just trying to split the legs and get one leg in the middle and put their opponent on their back. So they're not trying to pass at all. They're not trying to submit. They're just trying to get to the headquarters, basically. And then the person on the bottom, they're allowed to sweep, grip, fight, enter the legs if you want, they can, any any kind of guard they want, but they can't fall to their back and they can't allow the headquarters. So it forces the person on the top to hunt that hub position and put their opponent in a supine guard. And then the person playing guard, what it forces them to do is always have the inside position, grip, fight, learn to get Kazushi as soon as you get a guard and prevent them splitting your legs. So it's like it's kind of a helpful fuck your jujitsu type game that we do a lot at the school. You know, what's funny is you're talking about how you look at the headquarters from the top as a hub position for passing in Nogi. And in the Gi, it's kind of almost the opposite, where I look at headquarters as a hub position for setting up open guards and sweeps because it's so much more effective to play from that position on the bottom in the gi. Like if I get headquarters on the bottom, I don't feel particularly threatened and I know I can work from there to get into a lot of other different positions. But in no gi, if you wind up in headquarters on the bottom, to your point, you're basically just waiting for your opponent to pass you unless you can take some corrective action. So it's interesting how it's a hub position, whether you're on the top or the bottom, but in the gi situation, it has very different connotations than it does in no gi. For sure. And you know, the, the, the same things apply, I think, like, I think the strategies remain the same when we're talking about the differences between gi and no gi. So first of all, the grip fighting is still super important in the engagement phase. I mean, that doesn't change. Basically, how you enter your guard matters. You can't just pull a guard and not have grips because then you're going to fall into a defensive cycle right away. And that's a that's something that I'm guilty of. For many years, I did that. All it came down to was straight up ignorance. Like I didn't have the correct goals in mind to stay safe. I just kind of did what I wanted, <laughs> tried to get to like the guard that I wanted, but with no real like goals in mind. Like, okay, as soon as I get my guard, I'm going to off balance them. That's my goal. Never really thought about that until I started really studying, okay, what are these guys doing? 
to be effective from the bottom in the gi. And uh, so grip fighting is super important no matter what, whether you're fighting for lapels, fabric, or if you're if you're fighting for levers. It's still super, super important. And of course, the other thing that still applies both gi and no gi is looking to off balance to do what what uh, Gordon and Dan Hurst say, create limb extension. So when you can create limb extension, uh, making your partner post to base out, you create vulnerability. That's where you're going to enter the legs. That's where you're going to get sweeps and threaten submissions. So that th- those things don't change. Yeah, that's one of the things that's definitely common. And this is especially critical if you're the little guy. When you're on the bottom, the way that you want to get on top is basically you isolate a limb, whether it be an arm, a leg, sometimes even the head, and you use that limb to get on top. And the way you do that is by extending the limb, which takes your opponent out of base, and that allows you to complete the sweep. And the difference is in nogi, you basically have to work exclusively with body mechanics. You have the arms at your disposal, the legs, the head. In the gi, though, it's a little bit different because you also have the lapels. And it's kind of hard to explain like a magic formula for how to make lapels effective because the reality is with lapels, there's just so many different things that you can do with lapels, so many different ways, and, and the sleeves and the pant fabric as well. So many different ways you can tie your opponent up. So it's kind of hard to quantify it in exactly the same way that we do when you're talking about how the human body works, but there are definitely some commonalities. And one of the interesting things about the way that you can use the gi fabric is you don't necessarily need to be tying yourself to an individual arm, leg, or the head. Like normally when you're just talking about the body, you tend not to try to attack like the core directly, but you can kind of sort of do that if you've got the gi in play because you can use a person's gi to wrap up their body in such a way that it immobilizes them. I mean, some pretty common examples are like, think about the situation where you're on top and you're able to like grab the guy's lapel and pull it behind his back onto the other side. Think about how bad that immobilizes people. And you can employ similar strategies when you're playing a gi-based guard. I mean, worm guard is probably a great example of that, where you just by by virtue of the fact that the way you're tying your leg to the person's, basically their hip or their thigh, it's, it's not so much that that worm connection actually by itself extends a limb, but it checks your opponent and holds them in place while you start going hunting to extend limbs. So it's kind of like a the first step towards getting to that limb extension, but it's quite different because in no gi, you wouldn't necessarily do that. You try to grab a limb and extend it, whereas in the gi, you have this whole extra layer of being able to tie fancy knots around the person to mm. hold them in place, and then you extend the limb. Um, and that's one of the things that I, I was guilty of making a mistake for on a long time which is that I would not be paying much attention to what my opponent was doing when they were like grabbing my lapels and tying me up. I would just try to go ahead and just do my pass. And it took me a long time to realize if your opponent has you tied up in all sorts of fancy ways, you're just too immobile. Even if it feels like you have full control of your arms and your legs, which you might, if they have tied you in place, it's going to be very hard to complete anything. So your first action has to be to disentangle. A common mistake that I think a lot of beginners make is they get all tied up by their opponent and they feel like, oh, well, you know, I still feel like I have my base. So I'm just going to go ahead and try and pass from here. And you might have your base, but the problem is if you're tied in position and can't move, it's only a matter 
matter of time until your opponent is able to isolate one of your levers. So you really, really have to deal with getting tied up first and foremost, even if at any given time it feels like you have your base underneath you. Yeah, you bring up worm guard, which is obviously exclusive to the gi. And I think you you discussed untangling as sort of a, a defense. Of course, that would be, I think, describing a late stage defense because, you know, if you're if you're stuck in a worm guard, yeah, you have to detangle. But man, it's like it's not really easy. I think it's I think the best way to describe uh, lapel based defense is definitely managing the range. Like if my opponent, let's say my opponent, you know, swipes my lapel up. Out, and then they grab a two on one on my lapel and then they're going to fall back to a supine guard. So they're going to be, you know, on their back and trying to set up either a worm or squid or whatever their approach is. You know, it's, it's really important to disengage their feet because you can't really break the grip that they have on your lapel. But you what you can control is where their feet go. And if you control their feet, you can you can essentially prevent the entanglement. Right. So that is kind of. That's what I do when my guys try and use worm on me. I mean, we're not like a worm guard school, but we do play it. So uh, that's what I found has worked best for me. And even in in the lapel encyclopedia, Keenan basically says, you know, it's it's crucial before we learn all these positions that we learn proper foot position for the lapel guards, because that's how we're going to we're going to make sure we don't get past right is having our feet in good position. Without that, you're literally just hanging on to a lapel. So it doesn't it actually doesn't do anything unless you entangle your legs. Yeah, I think it's really, really important to understand that prevention is better than cure when it comes to getting stuck in these cards. I mean, obviously, if you're tied up, then you need to disentangle before you pass. But the best thing is just to not get tied up in the first place. It comes down to the phases of guard, which is a mental model we have definitely discussed in the past. And the mistake that many people make is they ignore the engagement phase and they just try to waltz right into whatever guard they're comfortable in. You talked about this in the past about how, you know, you've got a guard in your mind that you want to play and you just try to go there. But especially in the gi, the way that your opponent sets up grips is super, super important. And it's really in your best interests not to just waddle into their guard (laughs) and let them get whatever grips they want. You kind of have to play from a range and make sure that you You only truly enter the guard when you're comfortable that you can do so with the dominant grips. Like if you're basically just walking into your opponent's guard and trying to play, you know, De La Hiva from the top and you're comfortable just letting them get all of the grips, that's a big mistake. You're far better not walking into their guard until you win the grip fight. So Mm -hmm. it's a matter of staying back and forcing the game to stay in the engagement phase. Um, That's something that I I learned quite a while ago and it ties into some of the drills that you've talked about here where rather than being in a big rush to just walk into someone's guard, I stay back and I hand fight until I get the dominant grip and then I walk in. Because especially in the gi, that changes everything. Uh, And now with all of these funky lapel guards being developed, uh, worm guard, and even just more standard lapel guards... I've come to respect exactly how powerful those can be. And if you wind up in someone's guard and they have lapel control, you might be there for a long time trying to break that free. I mean, breaking a lapel grip is one of the hardest grips to break because it is loose. Mm -hmm. Um, And because the way that your opponent winds up grabbing the lapel, often they've done so in a way where there's no easy way for you to break it. Like if you grab my sleeve, it's pretty easy for me to break that. First of all, because the grip is quite 
tight. It's hard to have like a loose sleeve grip. I, and if it is loose, I can take the slack out. And also you've got your hand right in front of me. So because you're grabbing my sleeve, I know exactly what I have to do to break it. But the problem is if you go for like a lapel guard, your hand might be out of my range. It might be behind my back in some situations. It can be very, very hard to break the grip if you don't have easy access to your opponent's hand. So I've really learned that when it comes to lapel guard especially, you've got to do a really good job of making sure that you don't even enter the guard unless you're the one with the dominant grips. You force the game to stay at the engagement phase until you're good to go. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the main, so when we're talking about these different guards, gi versus no gi, I mean, I, it is kind of the gripping that is the main difference, right? And then from there you have all these different options. So I think I think it's important to discuss kind of the main gripping uh, themes that you'll see in the gi. Uh, you know, of course, no gi, a lot of what you're going to see is like two-on-ones. You're going to see collar ties and pretty basic stuff, arm drags, Russian ties, all, like I said, two-on-ones. But in the gi, you have the main open guard schemes you're going to see is you're going to see uh, spider guard, so double sleeve. Uh, you're going to see, you know, sleeve and collar, collar and ankle. Even cross sleeve is re- is pretty common as well. But again, that usually is based, I think, in the spider guard family. And then, of course, the lapel family. So those are those are kind of the main grips that you're going to see. And then if you're building your gi open guard game, I think it's important to not just learn about you know, Delaheva, single leg X and butterfly. And like, obviously you have to have that knowledge, but it is important for you to understand how the grips change and how, you know, you can funnel to certain grip scenarios. And I'm not saying, you know, stick with one grip only that, you know, one, one thing Jonathan Thomas says is like, don't get too tied to a system that you identify yourself as a spider guard player or a collar sleeve player, because then you might prevent yourself from learning other other stuff, but it's, it's really important to also think about not just the guards, but the grips and how the gripping schemes are kind of how you transition from guard to guard and how you stay safe in that engagement phase until you can off balance someone. So really important to think about those, those main grips that we discussed. Yeah. And something that you had talked about on a previous episode, which is definitely applicable here, one of the most important things to understand if you're playing a gi based open guard is get used to abandoning grips and switching to better grips when you know you're going to lose it. Like if your opponent is in the process of breaking grips, you have two options. You can either stubbornly sit there and insist on trying to control that grip, which is a great way to break your fingers, or you can move on to something else. And that puts your opponent in an awkward position because they're one step now behind the tempo. They're still focused on breaking your grip and you've already abandoned that strategy and you're moving on to the next phase in the game. So very important to not get so stubborn about holding your grips that you refuse to move on to better options when they arise. And I find that often happens to me where, you know, if I'm grabbing my opponent's sleeve from the bottom, personally, I'm not a big player of sleeve grips. I already have crappy grip strength. I don't have particularly big, strong hands and I am afraid to hurt. I don't want my fingers to get all screwed up. So what I often do is I'll grab the sleeve grip. If it's there, I'll take it as control. But as soon as my opponent starts realizing I'm doing that and they start directing their attention towards breaking it, that's a good deal for me because if I've got a sleeve grip on someone in order for them to really break that grip, they need to basically devote both of their hands at the same time to fighting my one hand. 
that's a good trade because now that means that both of their hands are occupied, but only one of my hands is. So for a moment in time there, I have more weapons at my disposal than my opponent. So rather than sitting there and foolishly clinging onto this grip when my opponent is using two hands to try to break my one, I will let them focus on that and then I will just move on to something else. I mean, I'll go to the lapel, I'll go to the pant leg, I'll sit up, I'll do something, but I always want to stay one step ahead of them and I never want to continue to fight a battle that I'm losing Mm -hmm. and one of the most losing battles you can get into is you're like clinging onto something and your opponent is in the process of busting your fingers yeah totally i think getting married to grips and uh thinking that you need to grip harder in order to maintain grips is one of the stupidest things i've ever seen i know a lot of guys train their grips and i do too to some degree i do a lot of pulling and you know pull up type movements And, uh, I do, I do exercises for my fingers from time to time to make them stronger, but I don't think it's smart to like build your game to have grips that are just unbreakable. Like that's, that's a very small amount of the population that have that. And, and some people do have that, but it's just, I don't think it's a great strategy. I think what's more important when we're talking about building our open guard is to understand where the grip breaks from your opponent come from and then what is going to be the next move from there? Or or even better, can we transition to uh, something before they break the grips? Like as, as you see they're making a play for your grip, you're already somewhere else. And that is really how you can sort of stay in that offensive cycle and keeping your opponent in that constant state of off balance rather than kind of waiting for them to move. And then once you react, now all of a sudden we're in a defensive cycle, which is not really where we want to be. Yeah, it's funny you talk about people training their grips. I mean, I know that a lot of people do this. I've seen that you can buy all of these funky little accessories like these weird momentum balls that are supposed to be something where you can like play with them and it will help strengthen your grips. But Frankly, I think that's a fucking ridiculous way to approach a martial art. It would be like a boxer being like, I'm going to train my jaw so that no matter how many times you punch me, I don't get knocked out. It's like, okay, I mean, sure. But like, how about you just train so that you don't get punched in the first place? That's maybe a better strategy. Exactly. I think the same thing applies with grips too, right? I mean, there are some people who, for whatever reason, they just have like gorilla hands and you just cannot break their grip. But even in those cases, I don't think it's a wise strategy to basically be relying on like one of the weakest and smallest and most fragile parts of your body to control your opponent's entire body like that is just not a winning strategy and you've got to know when the strategy you're working is no longer the best one and move on to something that's more applicable so again i think that really one of the benefits to to grip management is once you realize that your opponent is about to break your grip move to something else at least that way you stay one step ahead of the curve and they fall behind in the game plan. Yeah, and if you're an instructor, you know, you can't teach a room full of students to have stronger grips. It's just not something you can teach, right? So if, you know, if you if you own a gym or you want to own a gym one day and you're, you're a really good spider guard player, but the reason you're a good spider guard player is because you have unbreakable grips, you know, then that's not really, it's not an attribute thing that you should be focusing on. It's just not, you just can't teach something like that. It's more important to, you know, actually figure out, okay, what am I actually doing in this guard that makes it effective? And how am I able to not regurgitate, but how am I able to uh, replicate this with a student and, you know, essentially turn them into 
uh, a better version of yourself, right? If you if you can't explain what you're doing to be effective technically, then how can you really, it's not going to help you as an instructor later on in the road. Yeah, definitely. It's something that is a, a painful admission, you know, which is that attributes do matter. And that comes into context more than just being big and strong, but there's weird little things, right? Like if you have particularly long arms and you know how to use them to your advantage, there's a lot of techniques that might work out better for you. But on the contrary, if you have shorter arms, as I do, I mean, I find, for example, that there's a lot of techniques having shorter arms that I can do with much greater success than bigger people can. Like guillotines are, I find are awesome if you have shorter arms because they're so tight by the time you get them in there. And grip strength is one of those things where I just suggest that no matter what you do, don't build an open guard game that is totally based on your grip strength. I mean, (laughs) yes, even if you were able to make it work, number one, you're going to regret that at some point in your life because you won't be able to move your fingers anymore. And number two, even if you are actually able to make it work, you are probably denying yourself the ability to find more effective solutions because there are a lot of great ways to play gi-based open guards and paralyzing your opponent with your grip strength is really not a winning strategy. I mean, yes, some people can do it, but if you insist on that, you're probably clinging to like a B-tier game plan when you could move on to an A-tier game plan. And this is a challenge that I've also had for a long time in my career, which was I would be doing things because technically they worked. And I thought, well, why would I stop doing something that works? And, but the thing is though, you know, yes, maybe something is working against the environment you're in and the level of competition you're in, but you could be clinging to like a B level game plan. And the fact that you're clinging to that is preventing you from making the changes that get you up to the next level. So just some food for thought. I'm always so jealous of guys with like ridiculously strong grips. I know. Something I wish, I don't know. I don't know what I'd want more unbreakable grips or unbreakable knees. That's a good question. I mean, I kind of would have to say knees. I think I would too. Simply because I do want to continue walking. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. on the on the other hand, though, I do want to continue being able to like grab things and press buttons. So it's a it's a tricky one. Yeah, I, I think that that's an important consideration, though, especially when it comes to open guard. Um, and to your point, one of the things about open guard that I think is baffling to newcomers is there are just so many different configurations for where your hands can go when you're playing in the gi. There's like two sleeves, there's two lapels, there's two pant legs, and then there's all sorts of little sub variations amongst that. So I think it's easy for people to get caught up and confused in all of this stuff about like, okay, what is the difference between spider and collar and sleeve and Della spider and all of these different things? And it gets really, really overwhelming to try to map all of those different variations into your head. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast where if you try to cram every single variation and technique into your head, it's just not going to go anywhere. Um, I wonder, Matt, from your perspective, when you teach people this guard based stuff and you're talking about the gi and all of the factors and different grips that come into play, do you have any concepts or strategies for teaching this so that people don't just get overwhelmed by the sheer number of different grips they can take? Well, I think if you try and teach too much in one day, it's going to be a real issue. I mean, it's such a huge topic. You could spend a month on even just different gripping schemes. Like we discussed earlier, you have to learn the guard. So you need to learn whatever specific guard you're talking about, whether it's Delaheva or single leg X, you got to learn why it works. 
And then you, you know, aside from that, you got to learn different grips. So you're really learning in my, in my view, you're, you're kind of learning two different subcategories when we're discussing a particular guard, because De La Hiva could be played with collar and ankle. It could be played with spider. It could be played collar sleeve like these. So I kind of just classify it that way. Like when I say De La Hiva, I refer to the foot around the leg. You know, when I say single leg X, I refer to entangling the one leg, both inside channel. Of course, when I say X guard, you know what I'm talking about. I'm hooking the far leg with my feet shaped like an X. But each guard is essentially like uh, if you want to call it like a mother guard or a, uh, you know, in, in the culinary arts, when we talk about sauces, we would have mother sauces. Those are kind of the five traditional sauces. And then there would be derivatives for each sauce. So you would just add like a few small garnishes or herbs or whatever, and it would totally change the sauce and it would have a different name. So I think this is kind of one of those situations where the best way to remember things is not necessarily learning each individual technique, but learning learning about the guard, what makes that guard work, and then learn about the gripping scheme and learn about how the gripping scheme, you know, how how you can use a specific gripping scenario to off balance, uh, how you can transition to different grips, you know, what submissions are available, things like that. So you kind of break it down into larger categories. And then from there, you have all the derivatives and all the variables and how you can modify that mother technique so that you you really don't have to memorize a lot or as much. The way that I like to think of it in a previous episode, you talked about this mental model of critical control points, which is what are the things that actually truly matter in any different concept? And I think that that's very applicable here. A mistake that I made in my younger days was I got so focused on trying to memorize all of these permutations of where my hand goes on this grip and what I do with the other grip that I wound up actually not really getting very good at any of them. And I think what is better to understand is to look at all of these mother positions like you talked about and understand the critical control points for all of them. Like in Delahiva Guard, I mean, we talked quite extensively about this in a whole separate episode. There are some things that are always going to be the same. Like, you know, you're trying to basically reap the knee to force your opponent to look away. You're trying to keep your knee pointed up at the ceiling. That kind of stuff always going to be the same in that position because those are the critical control points that make that position work. In terms of which grips are best, in terms of where to put your hands, really that's context dependent. And I think trying to memorize that stuff is not as useful as trying to memorize the critical control points. And then where your hands go is where they go. You know, whatever is available to you. A lot of that is going to depend on what your opponent does with their body. Um, You may or may not able to grab a sleeve. You may or may not be able to grab a lapel. But the important thing is that no matter what, you're making sure that you're using both of your hands. If you're playing Nogi de la Hiva guard and one of your hands or both of your hands are not in use, not a good sign. You need to be using all of the weapons that you have at your disposal. And then from there, it's just a matter of kind of understanding like the core concepts of that de la Hiva position that is all about wobbling your opponent back and forth to keep them off balance and keep them at bay. And then from there, you basically just freestyle it with your hands. If you take the other approach where you try to memorize all of these different grip configurations, you're going to be so focused trying to get your grips the way that you want that you're not going to be thinking about like, okay, what actually matters 
is this Delaheva hook and keeping my opponent looking away from me and wobbling them. So I think that's a good approach is to think about the critical control points, especially when you're looking at a position that has as much variation as the open guard in the gi does. Yeah, I mean, and again, I, I look at it all as families. Like, for example, you could play spider guard with both Delaheva as you could with, I don't know, you uh, a variation of X guard or there, there's just because you're playing spider guard or collar sleeve doesn't mean you're you know uh, exclusively playing one type of guard so there really is like ways that you can mix and match the grips with the guards but again a rule that you touched on there that's super important is all of your limbs have to be doing something whether it's gi or no gi you can't just have uh, weapons not being trained on a certain task that is that's just not acceptable right like the guy'll the guy'll just take control so really important that you're at least you have some kind of a goal and usually the goal whether it's gi or no gi from the bottom is to win the grip fight and off balance your opponent and then from there you have options now mm-hmm. what, what whatever type of guard you like to play again i don't recommend that you get like married to one specific guard and if if that guard doesn't work then you're kind of screwed you always need to have backup plans you always need to think like okay well if i can't get to my favorite guard maybe i'm a collar sleeve guy and i just can't get collar sleeve what is going to be my next play commonly when i play like a a collar sleeve and my opponent postures up and breaks the grips i'll immediately have like an ankle and i'll maybe go to the belt and start thinking about bolo or uh, going around to the back or whatever, you always have to have an answer for when you, when things go wrong. And I think that's where I used to make a lot of mistakes is I would just kind of freestyle it and I wouldn't have actual plays. So when, when my grip got broken against really good guys, I would end up paying for it. And I mm-hmm. think that that's something that you can really do to make your open guard better is think about think about worst case scenarios and start planning for when things start falling apart. Yeah, one of the core differences between open guards versus closed ones is open guards are very fluid. You often don't have so much control over your opponent that you can just hold them in place. So a big part of playing open guards effectively is having fluid options and being able to move on to something else if you're taken outside of the game that you want to play. And yeah, to your point, if you're having a guard in mind, a favored guard that you always want to go back to, that's not a great strategy because (laughs) you can't guarantee that you're going to wind up in that situation or that your opponent will stay there. So a big part of open guard is being able to fluidly switch between different variations and different positions, regardless of what your opponent throws at you. I remember when I was first learning butterfly guard, I was kind of down on it at first because I was thinking to myself like, well, why would I play this guard? Because I can't guarantee my opponent's just going to sit here. It's not like closed guard where I can hold him in place. Like, what if my opponent stands up or backs out or does something crazy? Like, why would I want to play this guard where I can't control what my opponent does? And I realize now that that's kind of the core philosophical difference between open and closed guard, which is that in open guard, you simply cannot control what your opponent is going to do. And it's not a matter of just having one card in your deck that you can play over and over again. It's a matter of having a lot of different options and being able to stay fluid and cycle between them so that no matter what your opponent does, you have an answer to that new question that they've thrown at you. It's one of the the more fundamental differences. And of course, I think the, the thing that makes 
the gi so much more interesting when you're talking about open guard is there are just so many weird variations of things that your opponent can do in terms of what they can grab. Uh, you mentioned the belt there. I mean, when I was thinking about this episode, I totally forgot about belt grips. I mean, that, but that is a very, very valid and legitimate thing that someone can do is they can grab your belt. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of very powerful attacks that you can do if you have access to someone's belt. I mean, it, it can be a bit flaky sometimes because belts don't always stay in place but if they do it's actually a shockingly powerful control grip especially like you said if you're going for something like barambolos from the bottom so yeah i think the sheer variability of what happens in the gi and the grips you can get are part of what make the position so dynamic and, and challenging for newcomers especially because it, it feels like no matter what you do you're always doing something wrong because your opponent just keeps grabbing onto new stuff and it takes quite a while to get comfortable having that happen to you yeah for sure well, that was a pretty good chat. Yeah, I thought it was. I mean, I think we did a good job of keeping this high level. I mean, it is, as we discussed at the beginning, very, very challenging to go into the reeds and bulrushes of like what an open guard is going to look like in the gi. I think that if you want to see specific examples, you've got to actually go and watch video or go and actually figure this out in class. But hopefully in terms of the concepts surrounding open guard, this has been helpful to everybody. Um, definitely, I think it clarified a few things for me as well. So just to recap some of the stuff that we talked about here today, the, the main mental models here, direct versus proxy control. This is an important thing to understand. Direct control is when your opponent is grabbing your body directly, meaning like they've got your arm, they've got your leg, they've got your head. This is fundamentally how you control someone in nogi. Proxy control is where you're grabbing something that is attached to the other person and you get leverage that way. So generally that's the gi. That's going to mean their pant leg, their belt, their lapel, their collar, their sleeve. Um, Proxy control is interesting because there's a lot more variability in terms of what you can do. And proxy control also has this added wrinkle, which is that grips can be either loose or tight. And that totally changes the way that you play them and the way that you break or deal with them. So very, very in-depth, challenging mental model to unpack. Uh, Maybe actually something we could talk about in-depth on its own at some point. For sure. We talked about grips dictating position. So this is ultra critical in any jujitsu scenario, but especially when you're talking about the gi. Whoever is able to establish dominant grips is going to be the person who is able to dictate what position things go to. So this is so important when you're playing open guard because as the guy in the bottom, you have to be the first mover to get those grips so that you can establish your guard in the first place. And as the guy on top, you want to deny your opponent the ability to do that and make sure that you counter with the appropriate dominant grips. Again, whoever winds up getting the dominant grips is going to dictate the position. We talked about inside channel control. Now in the gi, inside channel control is a rule that you can kind of break simply because you can use the gi to sort of tie your opponent in a compromising position. Uh, whereas in no gi, you don't really have that option and you often have to wind up going for inside channel control in almost every situation. We talked about the phases of guard. So in particular, the engagement phase and the importance of the engagement phase when you're dealing with the gi. When you are attempting to enter someone's guard, you must establish dominant grips during that engagement phase. And if you're not able to do it, 
Don't enter. Don't enter the guard until you've won the engagement phase. Similar strategy on the bottom. It's going to be very, very hard to just jump into the guard that you want unless you already have dominant grips. So you want to take advantage of that and take advantage of the fact that in the gi, it is often easier to get grips on the bottom than it is in no gi. So make sure you use that. Use both of your hands effectively. Make sure that you use grips effectively and take advantage of the fact that the gi makes it so much easier to establish powerful grips. We talked about dictating the pace. Always something you want to be doing. You never want to be falling behind the sequence and letting your opponent dictate the pace. Where this comes up here, if your opponent is attempting to break your grip, rather than foolishly trying to cling on to a grip that you're going to lose and maybe hurting your fingers, take advantage of the fact that your opponent is distracted and move on to the next phase. Come up with something else. Never cling to a grip that you're going to lose anyway. And finally, we talked about critical control points. One of the things about open guard is that it can be very overwhelming to learn. And once you start introducing all of the variability that comes with the gi, I don't know about everyone else, but I found that trying to remember all of the different grip configurations was just something I couldn't handle. I find now what is much more helpful is to focus on understanding the critical control points for all of these families of guards. Like for Delaheva guard, what are the things that really makes it work? For butterfly guard, for worm guard, any type of guard, what are the things that are actually going to make this work? Focus on that, and then you can adjust the grips accordingly depending on what is available at the time. Wow, very comprehensive. I think that was pretty comprehensive. Yeah, I think we did a pretty good job of covering this in an audio fashion. So Matt, I got a question for you. Cool. Okay, so one of our listeners writes in, Hey, I've been listening to your guys' podcast and I'm almost caught up. I've been struggling with something that I thought I could ask you about. I'll just jump right into it. I've been training hard for about a year and a half steady. And prior to that, about 10 years ago, I had been training for about a year as well. I'm contemplating changing gyms and have been for some time now. Reason being is because I'm not a fan of how the grading works and everything I see online or in podcasts shits on this business model. And I agree. (laughs) They have a stripe test and it's a hundred bucks every six months. As long as you show up and pay, you get your stripe. There's several issues with it, but my biggest thing is that I'm still only a one-stripe white belt, and I can beat 99% of the blue belts I train with regularly. Oh, God, get out. (laughs) (laughs) It sucks for them and for me constantly getting called a sandbagger when it's not up to me what rank I am. (laughs) Sandbagger. (laughs) So first of all, um, I mean, I have seen some usurious schemes when it comes to exploiting your students but charging a hundred dollars per stripe has got to be like a new low i have never heard of someone charging that much for a stripe i've heard of belt tests and charging for belt tests is already kind of unsavory but a hundred bucks a stripe i mean holy moly that's a lot to ask that's funny you know me and me and rob have recently discussed about stripes uh more more specifically when it comes to kids you know should there be belt tests and things like that i mean i think for adults i'm not a huge fan of belt tests i'm more of you know kind of a learn your students game you know pay attention to them type thing i don't know that that applies as much for adults like written you know theoretical parts of the test for kids though i can kind of see some i can see some value in that and i did i actually designed a like a kid's curriculum that i sort of wrote and then i put it away and haven't looked at it since just because of the whole lockdown thing there hasn't been a need for it but my my goal is to eventually give these tests quote unquote tests to the kids and sort of 
so that they know what they're expected to know, right? And if, you know, very well that by the time it is for them to get tested, they don't know what this move is, well, at least they can go on YouTube and look at it. So they know kind of the moves that I want them to know. Now, I'm not a move-based guy. I am a concept-based guy. Uh, of course, I, I think moves are important, but it's it's more about the space between the notes that I think, uh, you know, when it comes to grappling and martial arts in general. So there was definitely conceptual stuff on the tests. There was a practical section for the test where they'd have to perform moves. And then there was a live sparring test where they'd have to roll. So I, I sort of had this all planned out. And um, when I discussed it with Rob, he wasn't really into the idea because he said, well, a test assumes you're going to pass or fail him or, or her or whatever. And that's, you know, are you willing to fail students? And I'm, my whole thing was like, well, not really. Like if I if I want them to test, I'm pretty confident that they're ready for that belt. But this is kind of almost a kind of like a playbook if you will, not not necessarily a test, I guess, per se, like in, that you're going to pass or fail, but it's like a playbook that you would get earlier and you'd be able to study it. And then these are the sort of what is required for you both, you know, in terms of theoretical, practical, conceptual. These are all things that the test had. So I think that there is value for kids, but for adults, I mean, I know there are some gyms in my area that test for stripes and they charge for stripes and I'm not really a big fan of it. I think it's a marketing scheme. I think it's 100% putting money before the jujitsu. And that's just not how I'm into structuring my business model. So that's just my opinion. But people can make a shitload of money on it. <laughs> that's for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, it is actually kind of baffling to me. Like, hey, if you want to charge for a belt test, I mean, at least you can argue that, hey, I had to give you a belt and that's worth a little bit of money. But paying a hundred bucks for like a piece of sports tape. Holy moly. And I, I just, I can't believe that any instructor is going to be so organized and be so on top of the ball that they can actually give you a quality test every six months. Like, I mean, that involves a level of detail and attention and care that I simply don't think your instructor is probably giving you, (laughs) you know, to be able to come in and be like, wow, I got a hundred dollars worth of value out of this six month test. That seems a little but ridiculous in terms of the fact that they're not promoting you. I mean, Hey, that sounds weird. Like if I can make a hundred bucks off of every stripe I gave someone, you would be like a 20 stripe white belt by this point. So I'm kind of surprised you're not getting promoted, but that in itself tells me there's maybe some other problem going on just due to, I don't know, some sort of like weird gym drama or who knows what. I mean, I would definitely advise knowing very little about the situation, but I would just get out of there. Uh, I am not a big fan of charging for these tests. If you want to give the tests and you can make it valuable to everyone involved, sure, that's one thing. But it is a little bit of a tricky thing, especially if you're asking people to do it every six months. I mean, if this were a belt test and you've only got to do it like once every two and a half to three years, I mean, yeah, you can hold your nose and do it if you like the gym. But man, if someone, if my instructor hit me up for a hundred bucks every six months on top of what I'm already paying, then that's just not a good look. I mean, you got to start wondering what their motivations really are so sorry maybe maybe i wasn't listening but what what is he what are they charging per stripe a hundred bucks for every stripe that's that is criminal that is so much even the gyms in my area that charge for stripes i think it's no more than 40 canadian dollars like yeah which is like five american dollars right (laughs) yeah and i think that's too much a hundred dollars that is and and if you're tapping everyone out in that room I mean, you're not even there for the good training, really. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're a white belt and you're tapping everyone out in the room and they're trying to charge you a hundred bucks, like you should 
find a new gym. That is, there is just a lot going on that's wrong there. Uh, I haven't met the instructor. It's hard, you know, I shouldn't be passing judgment, but that just sounds unethical. And it sounds, he sounds a bit of a charlatan to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also don't want to pass judgment on someone I don't know, but in this case, I think the math kind of speaks for itself. I mean, that's a lot of profit for a few inches of sports tape, right? Yeah. And good on you. Good on you for, for challenging it yourself and not just falling in line and, and sort of, you know, being caught up in the spell because it's very easy for for people to just think, okay, well, this is how jujitsu is. Like, this is how every school is, right? And you're you naturally got a you know an inkling that it, like, hey, oh, something is wrong here. Something is a little bit weird here. And maybe other people feel it too, but they're just not willing to say anything. Yeah, yeah. I I would be very discouraged to see a gym that not only charges that much money for a stripe of all things, but also that clearly has some sort of issues in terms of the way that they manage ranking. I mean, if you've been training for a year and a half, like white belt is not about being a stone cold killer, right? I mean, very few people are going to be just total destroyers while they're still wearing a white belt. So the expectation at white belt should not be that like, you know, by the time you get to four stripe white belt that you're just totally awesome. White belt is just about getting comfortable, learning the basics and getting competent enough that you can really begin and continue the journey. So if you've been there for that long and you've only got one stripe, I mean, regardless of the situation, it kind of feels like your instructor just isn't really paying attention to you. And that's not good. I mean, I get a lot of feedback from listeners who kind of describe these similar situations where their instructor clearly is doing this for ego or money and they don't really care about their students and if you're in that situation you need to understand that is not normal i mean i i know that in martial arts things get a little bit culty and we kind of sort of forget the like there's a real world and you're expected to act like an adult but i mean if you're in a gym and you're asking yourself hey is my instructor basically just like using me for money or services or do they even care about me like as soon as you start asking yourself those questions that's a big red flag that maybe you've identified something and you should start looking at other gyms. Yep, get out of there. Yep, yep, cool. And hey, I mean, if you're going to pay people for stuff, first and foremost, you should pay for our Patreon. I mean, we will gladly take that money. I don't think there's an upper limit on this. If you want to give us a hundred bucks a month, I'm pretty sure Patreon will allow it. Uh, if you want to do that. <laughs> if you want to just go ahead and do that. Yeah. If, hey, if, if you're going to throw that kind of money away, let me tell you where you can put it. You can go to patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. This is the single most valuable thing you can do to support the show. Um, it takes a lot of time and money actually to run this thing. Matt can attest. And every dollar that you give us, it really does make a difference, not just in terms of you know, compensating for the time and the money it takes, but also in terms of motivating us to do better. Uh, we've got a, a pretty consistently growing clip there of patrons and every, again, every dollar helps a lot. And we want this to be something that you're actually paying for value here. So it's not just a charity. We've got a lot of really awesome premium content on there that's available. Uh, depending on the tier you get into, you know, you can get all of these podcasts early as soon as they're done. You get direct access to Matt and I on our discord chat where we're happy to answer whatever questions you've got, even get into online coaching. Sometimes we have premium strategy coursework that we make premium podcasts. And actually we're taking our stuff now and we're, we're putting it into books. So I think that at this point, we're not quite there yet. It's going to be a never ending journey, but this thing is really actually turning into an awesome library of content. And I don't think there's anything else out there like it. So if you want to get in on that, patreon.com slash BJJ mental models is how you can support us and get access to that stuff. Yeah. And thanks for all your support guys and uh we appreciate all the feedback 
and hopefully you'll see you soon. Fuck a hundred dollars a month. I think we're undercharging. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm as, as a gym owner, I'm getting ideas here. I, Fuck, I, could, I, could, I could retire a decade earlier if I start implementing this policy. Literally. Like I, yeah. I, I could probably literally do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess just some other plugs as well. Of course, if you want to pick up our merch, you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store where we've got gi patches, t-shirts and hoodies. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com itself, which is our mothership. That's where you have access to the database of mental models we talk about on this show, as well as a quick form to contact us. That's bjjmentalmodels.com. You can also go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join to get on our newsletter, which we send out every Friday. We greatly expand on a lot of the stuff that we talk about here on the show, and we publish some interesting thought pieces there. The newsletter is growing like crazy, so I definitely suggest that you get on on that. It is, of course, free. And you can also check us out on Facebook and on Instagram. Cool. Well, I think that was a really good chat, Matt. Great. Closing insights. Don't be cheesy. Don't do it for the money. Do it for the jujitsu or whatever it is you do. And support us on Patreon. (laughs) That being said, please give us some money. (laughs) Awesome. All right. We don't do this for the money. Well, maybe we do now. I don't know. (laughs) We don't do this for the money, but we would do this for the money if we could. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. It would be nice to do it for the money. <laughs> it would be very nice to do it for the money. Awesome. So this is part right. four of our Open Guard series. We'll close it out next week. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Take care. Good night, guys.